Christians for nothing. There's some new faces. Welcome to Catch the Fire Ottawa. For those of you who don't know, my name's David. I just realized we haven't introduced ourselves, and that's my amazing, gorgeous wife, Trisha, who you also saw in the djembe earlier. So, so good to have you guys here. Now, I uh, started a series last week, and I'm going to continue uh, in that message. And um, I realized because some of you weren't here, and also just to give a refresher, I thought it would be good to just give you sort of a general summary overview of what I started covering last week and then take off from there. Now, um, because of this, the nature of this particular series, if you want to uh, get the messages, the previous messages, we always post them on Facebook um, on our Catch the Fire Ottawa webpage. Um, and if you're not on Facebook, feel free to just email me and I can send them to you. Because some people have been asking, and so uh, just at, uh, the email address is ottawa at catchthefire.com. We'd be more than happy to send you, whether the, it's the PowerPoints or the MP3s. But, um, so I started a series, and I started off by asking the question, what is success? And um, I won't go into as much detail today, but I wanted to mention what I talked about last time. Uh, a presupposition I have, and I hope all of you have, is that God wants us to be successful. And I talked, yeah, amen, and I talked about how, thank God, for the last 30, 40 years or so, this has been tremendously emphasized in the church. Um, you know, just, just go on any Christian channel and you can hear pretty much anyone talk about God wants you to be successful and that is a yes and amen. I completely agree with that, and I hope you do too. God wants you to have a successful life. He wants to heal you. He wants to prosper you in every way. Now, with that being said, I think to our detriment, part of the issue is that we've defined success in a way that is temporal and not eternal. So we've defined success and perceived it in the way society defines success, and as a result, sometimes we can miss the mark because we are trying to live according to the world's standards, okay? And I gave the example last week of John the Baptist, right? In the world's eyes, he would have been tremendously unsuccessful because he lived in the wilderness, right? He wore camel skin for clothing, he ate locusts and honey, and he died at the age, early 30s. Very unsuccessful, right? You give anyone that biography, most people will be like, man, that guy, what was up with him? <laughs> However, God, according to God's definition of success, that guy was really, really successful. Jesus said there was no man born of a woman as great as he up until that point. And so we have to shift our definition of what success is so that it aligns with God's definition of success. And the way we do that is the key is adopting an eternal perspective. That is the key to living a life that's, that's going to be successful in not the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. Now, I gave the, the example last week, and I'll just use it again, of retirement, right? Like, a lot of us hopefully, have been planning for retirement for decades, or at least thinking about it. Like, probably since the time you started your job, I cannot wait to retire, right? And I'm going to save up for my entire life so that I can live well when I retire for, you know, maybe 15 or 20 years. Now, that's great, and that's wisdom, but it's short-sighted, isn't it? Because, and when I, I made the point that how come it is that we're planning so much for retirement that, you know, so we can enjoy 
whatever, this temporal time for 10 or 15 years or 20. Um, but we're spending almost, not we, but almost a lot of us are spending zero time planning for eternity. And that's a tragedy. Because there's so many scriptures, and that's the point of the series, there's so many scriptures that exhort us there's so many promises that tell we should be planning for eternity. I gave you the scripture last week where Jesus says in Matthew 6, not to store for yourself up treasures on earth because moths destroy it, rust destroys it, people can steal it, right? But instead, store for yourself treasures in heaven where rot, moths won't destroy it, rust won't destroy it, people aren't going to steal it. And then he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart is also. Right? So if we're just, if our treasure is in this earth, and like I said, there's nothing wrong with planning for retirement, but if, if our treasure, if we're just planning ahead for this temporal realm, we're going to miss it, and our heart's going to be in this earth, isn't it? But if our, if our shift, or sorry, our perspective shifts and our focus goes to eternity, then that's where our heart's going to be, and that's what we're going to live for. So the, it's critical that we adopt an eternal perspective so that we can live this life well as Christians. And it's a tragedy, in my opinion, that, and, and I could be wrong, but at least to the streams and movements and denominations I'm, I've been exposed to, almost neglected in the church, how important it is to adopt the eternal perspective, other than evangelists saying heaven or hell, right? I'm talking about there, the way we live now is going to determine the positions we have, the rewards we have, how we're going to live forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Not 15 or 20 years, forever. And last week I talked about what eternity means and we can't even comprehend it. Forever and ever and ever and ever. Right? I gave the example of what if hypothetically for the next 24 hours that determined the next thousand years of where you're going to live, who your neighbors are going to be, um, the job you're going to have. All of us would live as well as we could for that 24 hours so that we lived like, right, with the best life we could for a thousand years. How, why is it that we're not constantly thinking about what we're doing now so that we can live well forever? Never mind a thousand years forever, which is hard to fathom because, right, Abraham lived like 6,000 years ago. We, it's hard for us to even, like, have that, not Abraham, rather, Adam and Eve, right? 6,000 years is according to the Bible, when God created man. So it's like, how we can't even think past that. Anyway, you see my point. My point is to get us to start thinking eternally. And I want to shout this, and that's why I'm going to spend however many sessions the Lord leads me to talking about this. Okay, because when the Lord started speaking to me about this years ago, it changed my life. It really did. Always having that at the back of your mind, how I'm living now is going to have eternal ramifications. What am I doing to live for eternity? And I would suggest if you're spending hours thinking about retirement, why aren't you spending at least the same amount of time, if not hopefully more, thinking about eternity? Okay? So, so I'm going to emphasize this and, and, you know, for the next however long. And so we're going to be talking about eternity for a while. Okay. So I, I said, oh, um, I want to say this. I, I realize I didn't even go over this slide. We will one day stand before the judge of the universe, Jesus Christ, and if we made our life count through godly wisdom, then we will be rewarded eternally. And there's tons of scriptures on this, and I'm going to go over them in the weeks to come. If we've been misguided in our affairs, we'll either be punished or suffer eternal loss. Okay, so it's wise to find out what God's looking for, and I'm going to be talking a little bit about that today. And our focus should be to make our life count for, not just for today. Though today matters, right? 
So it's true. We should be thinking about today. But more than that, we should be thinking about eternity. Okay? So that's sort of the brief, succinct uh, uh, intro to the series. Um, Living life from an eternal perspective. And that's the name of the series. Next slide. Yes. Thank you, Kim. Living life from an eternal perspective. Okay. So the scripture I went over last week, uh, in some details, Ecclesiastes 3.11. And I'm just going to go over this quick today. He's made everything beautiful in its time. He's also set eternity in the human heart. Regardless of whether you're saved or not, God has planted that in the heart. So even if people deny eternity in their minds or that there's a God, for instance, in their heart, they know. Right? We talked a little bit about this last week. And then it says right after, even though we know in our hearts, yet no one can fathom what God has done from the beginning to the end. So in other words, we can't even really comprehend eternity. But nonetheless, we know it exists. Right? It's in our heart. And so... Regardless of people deny that there's a God, they know that they know that deep down inside, if they're listening to their hearts, they know. And I, like I said last week, I think that's why there's certain movies like Lords of, Lord of the Rings and others that resonate with so many people because there's eternal elements that are uh, woven throughout those movies and people are, people, it speaks to people's hearts. So, um, and then he says, I know that everything God does will endure forever. Nothing can be added to it and nothing taken from it. God does it so that people will fear him. Now, I won't maybe talk about this. I'll talk about fear of the Lord sometime because you're going to notice when we talk about eternity and eternal judgments, there's always, it talks about the fear of the Lord. He does this and he has it this way so that people will fear him. Okay? And I will say this. The fear of the Lord is awesome. There's a misconception that it's not. It says in Isaiah 11 verse 3 that Jesus actually delighted in the fear of the Lord. It actually says, if you read Isaiah 1 through 3, and maybe I'll talk about this more next time, it talks about the sevenfold spirit of God, that he anointed Jesus with the Holy Spirit, the spirit of wisdom and counsel, knowledge and understanding, um, power, and the fear, the spirit of the fear of the Lord, and he delighted in it. This is kind of funny. I remember the first time I read the, Lord, uh, sorry, the, the final quest, and he actually, how many of you have read that book? Great. You, about, and if you haven't, that's one of the most impactful books I've ever read. I've read it like six times. I mean, it's phenomenal. He was in heaven in the judgment seat of Christ, which we're going to be talking about a lot. Okay? The judgment seat of Christ, about a quarter of the first book. Right? And he's interacting. And it's the, the fear of the Lord. I actually had an experiential encounter with the fear of the Lord. It was actually an experience. You know how you feel like peace and joy, like supernatural from the Holy Spirit? It was like the fear of the Lord. I actually felt it. For a day or two. And what was interesting is I was getting drunk too. It, it, it's hard to comprehend with your mind. I was like drunk and I, was, I had the fear of the Lord. And I was like, what is going on here? And the, you know what the Lord told me? Isaiah. The one I, scripture I just gave you. Jesus delights in the fear of the Lord. It, it, can, it can be a delightful thing. It's hard for us to understand. But it's not. It's not. So I want to say that because you're going to notice when we talk about eternity, there's a lot of scriptures on the fear of the Lord. And that's a good thing. It's clean, the Bible says. It's great. So anyway, kind of getting off here. But whatever has already is, or already has rather, oh my goodness. Whatever is, has already been. And what will be, has been before, God will call the past into account. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked. For there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. Notice this in the context of eternity. Okay, and the, the judgment seat of Christ is always in the context of eternity because 
We're, the judgments on judgment day are eternal. They're forever and ever and ever and ever. And God does it this way, right? That's what it says, so that people will fear him. This is how we keep on the path of life, okay? So, last week I talked about eternity, the first portion of scripture, like what is it and that sort of thing. Then I started a bit on the second part I've highlighted on eternal judgments, okay? So I want to go there today and then finish what I wanted to talk about last week, okay? So eternal judgments. Now, last week... I gave you Hebrews 6, 1 to 3 for a reason. And I'm going to just read it. Therefore, let us move beyond the elementary teachings of Christ. And I get the elementary teachings of Jesus Christ. Last week I talked about, we all know what elementary school is. We all went there. What do you learn in elementary school? It's the basic, basic, basic adding, subtracting, multiplication, learning how to read and write. The things that you need to move on for the rest, to be successful the rest of your life. And, right, imagine going to university and not knowing how to read or write or add or subtract. Not even possible. These are the elementary. These are the things we should be learning. Christianity 101. Elementary school, Christianity 101. Teachings about Christ and be taken forward to maturity, not laying again the foundation. He's saying these are the foundation you build everything else on. These things. Okay, of repentance from acts that lead to death, okay, and of faith in God. Instruction about cleansing rites, other translations say baptisms. Laying on of hands, that sure has been neglected for thousands of years, hasn't it? Until Randy Clark, like I said last week, has been trumpeting that, the doctrine of laying on of hands. But that's something you don't even hear about usually, unless you're in our stream, right? What's the laying on of hands? Like, you know, um... Pretty much neglected by the church, but this is an elementary teaching. We should all be aware of what that is. Uh, the resurrection from the dead and eternal judgment. That's why I have that highlighted. Why don't we talk about this like all the time is my question. If this is the fundamental stuff, why are we ignoring it in the body of Christ like it doesn't exist? Like as if if we ignore it, we're gonna, it's going to somehow pan out on judgment day and it'll just all go well. Uh-uh. That's why we should be constantly thinking about eternity so that we are not shocked and surprised when we stand before Jesus Christ because we know where we stand. And, and it shouldn't be a mystery because this, this is all over the scriptures, all over the Bible. And that's why I'm going to like spend this time talking about some of these scriptures that are often neglected in the church because no one wants to think about it. And there's some really... Uh, destructive doctrines out there that people just accept as truth. And we don't want to go there, do we? we? We don't want to just believe what everyone else believes just because someone told us that, maybe in our denomination. Whatever. We want to believe the Bible, right? So the, some of these things I'm guaranteeing you are going to offend you over the next however long I talk about this. The reason is because human beings have rationalized away some of these scriptures, it's a, it's a weird thing. If you talk to someone who's so set in their ways and you show them these scriptures, how they rationalize them away and explain them away like, oh no, that's not what it says. If you read it at face value, that's what it says. You have to make a pretty convoluted argument that that's not what it says, but that's what they do. There's two main schools of thought that have influenced Protestants, and we probably have been a, a Calvinism and Arminianism, right? Reformed? Yeah. Some of you look at me confused. Maybe I should talk about this someday. Yeah, I probably will, okay? Because some of you are like, huh? <clears throat> it doesn't matter. 
both of them, what I did want to say, because even if you don't know what they are, you know what they are. Because whatever church you grew up in, unless you're a new Christian, you were taught from one of those two perspectives, probably, more or less. And that's just what you believe because that's what the denomination taught you. Because most denominations come from one of those two major perspectives. Now, the reason you're going to be offended is because I don't buy either of them. Let me say this. Scripturally speaking, if you, if you take those two perspectives, there's scriptures that contradict both of them. However, there's scriptures that confirm both of them. So, in the, in, if you talk to someone, and I have before, who's so stuck in, like, Reformed Calvinism, and you bring up certain scriptures, it's weird how they say, no, that's not what it says. It's like, that is what it says. We don't want to do that. We don't want to say, no, that's not what it says, because that can get us in a lot of trouble, eternally speaking. Now, the reason I said that, I want to base my beliefs off the Bible, not off a school of thought. Those are schools of thought that are man-made. Anything that's man-made is going to be off to a certain extent, unless it's rooted in what God said, the Bible. Okay, so that's why I'm saying probably, if, if you read these scriptures at face value, at some point you might either be convicted or you might try and rationalize them away. Let's try not to rationalize them away. Let's just take them at face value and be like, okay, that actually is what the Bible says, right? That's what all I'm asking, that you have an open heart. Eternal judgment. Okay, I'm getting off a little bit here. <laughs> Key point. Uh, this is, I'm probably going to quote this a lot in this series because it's important. What we do with the cross determines where we spend eternity, heaven or hell. By grace. Okay? And I'll talk more about this later. This is important that we're rooted in that fundamentally. Because if we aren't, this kind of teaching is going to get you into legalism. I'm going to talk about it later. We don't want to go there either. The way we live as believers determines how we're going to spend eternity. How. Not where, not heaven or hell. That's determined by grace, by Jesus Christ, whether we believe, right? We know that, hopefully. But how? And I, 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 like I said, you're going to bear with me, hopefully, over these next few weeks. I'm going to show you tons of scriptures on this. The kind of pos- the position we're going to have. What we're going to do. The kinds of rewards we're going to have. Where we're going to live in heaven. All of this. Determined by how we live. In this life. In this zero time. Like I said, 24 hours, next thousand years, hypothetically. Why aren't we living like we would in those 24 hours for the next forever? <laughs> because, and, and I'll show you scriptures. That's why some of you might be like, no, that's not true. I'm going to show you scriptures, and you, and you might just have to bear with me over weeks, because it takes some time. There's so many of them. But I want you to, th- to keep that in mind, okay? I don't want to start some kind of weird works theology, because it's just... Okay, 2 Corinthians 5, 5 9 through 11... <clears throat> So we make it our goal to please him, whether we're at home in the body or away from it. We're talking about believers now, contextually. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Not just unbelievers, all of us. So that each of us may receive what is due us, the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Not just good, whether good or bad. And it's interesting, I don't know this here, but right after it says... 
Since we know then how, what it is to fear the Lord, right after he talks about the fear of the Lord, we should persuade others. And he goes into that famous scripture about reconciliation and stuff. Talking about the judgment seat of Christ, the fear of the Lord. And like I said, if you embrace it, there's a lot of glory on it. Okay, so let me show you. This is a famous, the well-known scripture, just what I'm talking about. How we live, not where, how we live is determined by uh, the, how we live in this life. The eternal rewards and punishment. Uh, let me just read the scripture. I'm messing myself up. Okay. So I talked about this a little bit last week. But for those of you who weren't here, this is such an important scripture. That's why I want to say Okay. So what after all is Apollos? What is Paul? Only servants through whom you come to believe. As the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed. Apollos watered it. But God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God who makes things grow. The one who plants and the one who waters have one purpose, and they will each be rewarded according to their own labor. For we are all co-workers in God's service. You are God's field, God's building. So he goes into this analogy about building. By the grace God has given me, I've laid a foundation as a wise builder, You'll also notice, we're talking about foundation, we're talking about wisdom here. You also, you'll notice people who live for eternity are called wise in the Bible. Those who don't are called foolish. Like I said last week, imagine you met somebody who knew for the next 24 hours is going to determine everything I do for the next thousand years. I'm going to live foolishly for the next 24 hours. I'm going to get drunk, I'm going to do this. We would say, you are a fool. I pity the fool. Right? <laughs> Who's living for the next 24 hours is going to determine thousand years, you fool. It's no wonder the Bible calls them fools who live, who squander this life and don't live according to his principles. It's foolish. Okay, so as a wise builder and someone else is building on it, but each one should build with care for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Okay, here we go. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, talking about eternity, things are going to last, or wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. Talking about the day of judgment. Going to bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. Say reward. (laughs) Reward. Eternal reward. We're talking about eternity now. Eternal judgments. Something that will last forever. If it's burnt up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved. Even though only is one escaping through the flames. Remember I talked, I gave that quote. Where we spend eternity is not determined by us. That's grace. How we spend eternity is determined. Based off of what we do in this life. That's why he says, you're still going to be saved. Everything you've done in this life is burnt up though. And you're barely getting in. (laughs) That's kind of what it's saying. Right? Escaping through the flames. We don't want to be building with the, the temporal. The hay. The straw. We want to be building with the costly stones. And this is what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. The costly stones. The things that will last forever. So eternal judgments are decisions that result in either rewards or losses, right? I just showed you that scripture, or punishment if if you're not a believer. Eternal rewards and punishments will last forever and ever 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 ever forever. This isn't a thousand years like the example I'm giving you. This is forever. Why aren't we constantly thinking about eternity in our daily lives? We want to live forever. 
well, right? So for believers, it can range anywhere from everything being burnt up, the scripture I just gave you, to ruling beside Jesus Christ at his throne forever. That's Revelation 3.21. We'll probably talk, we will talk about that someday in more detail. Okay, so with all that being said, what criteria, and this is kind of where I left off last week, will our eternal judgment be based on? That's the million dollar question, isn't it? That's what we want to know, right? So what criteria is God going to be using? And I'm going to just show you a bunch of scriptures. Now I left off in <laughs> maybe an awkward scripture, sorry guys. Talked about Matthew 7. Now the reason I'm giving this scripture is because if it gives us a clue as to what we're going to be judged based on. I'm talking about the criteria now. This, I said last week this is a scary verse. And I'll elaborate on that more because this is relevant to us who believe right now. These people aren't believers at the judgment day, but I'm going to show you scripturally why they were at one time. Or they're deceived in thinking they were. Okay. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. That's the key, doing the will of the Father. They're the only ones who are going to heaven. But, okay, many, not a few, many will say to me on that day, talking about Judgment Day, Lord, we talked about this last time, repetition in the Bible, right? That's how they emphasize something. You can almost see them, Lord, Right? That's why he's repeating it. It's, Lord, like they, they think, they believe. I'm calling you Lord. Like I believe it. This is why it's scary. Did we not prophesy in your name? Right? And in your name, drive out demons. And in your name, perform many miracles. Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I never even knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. I have your name highlighted. Because some, some say these are false miracles. Like, but I don't, like, I don't think they are because he's not saying in Buddha's name or Muhammad's name. In Jesus' name. But the other reason I'm going to show you scripturally, I think he's talking about people who were once saved or who are deceived and think they're saved when they're not. Is, actually, can you skip two slides, Kim? Because I don't think scripturally believers can cast out demons. In your name did we not cast out demons. The question becomes, can unbelievers cast out demons? And I don't think you can. And I'll show you some scriptures why I don't think so. Acts 19, 11 to 20. Now, I love this verse. Remember last, last year's Extraordinary Faith? This, this, do you remember the story we told you with the thing and Joshua Mills thing and Extraordinary? No, okay. No, no. Anyway, this is the verse. <laughs> extraordinary Faith. Last year's, anyway. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul. So that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he touched, uh, that touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured. The evil spirits left them. Okay, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits, tried, so they're trying to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon possessed. They would say, in the name of um, the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Schema, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? That's kind of funny, isn't it? Who are you? Trying to cast, you know. Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. They couldn't cast out the demons because they're not true believers. The Jesus who Paul preaches, who the heck are you? You can't do this, right? Here's another scripture. 
Mark 9, 38 to 41. Teacher, John said, we saw someone driving out demons in your name and we told him to stop because he was not one of us. Talk about, anyway. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name, right, he's talking about miracles now, can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever's not against us is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose his reward. How many of you did you get water today? Isn't that funny? We give someone a cup of water, Jesus, like you're going to be eternally rewarded. I love that. That's why I kept that in there. The point is, (laughs) the point is, no one who does a miracle in my name, right? That's what Jesus is saying. Now, I, I could go on. In Matthew 12, he says something similar. When people accused him of casting out demons by the devil, he said no. A kingdom divided against itself, that famous scripture. Um, right, yeah. In other words, demons aren't casting out demons. If by the Spirit of God, however, I'm casting out demons and the kingdom has come upon you. All that to say, I talked about, I'm talking about Matthew 7 now. These people who apparently cast out demons, I would say one time they were believers. That's why this is crazy. One time, at one time, or they're deceived and they think they're believers, and we're going to talk all about those people when they weren't. Okay? I, I will say this now, I guess. John Bevere, and I told you about his book, that I'm like using that as a textbook for this, because it was an amazing book called Driven by Eternity. He talks about this vision the Lord gave him in the 1980s. Whoa. And in this vision, he saw a multitude. He said, like a Reinhard Bonnke, you know, millions of people who were meeting the Lord on Judgment Day. And he said every single one of them expected the Lord to say, enter into, right, the kingdom. And you know what Jesus said? He said, away from me, you evildoers. I don't even know you. And John said the shock and horror on their face was undescribable because they all thought that they're going to heaven. They're all like, Lord, like these people, Lord. They thought they were saved, but they weren't. Could you imagine that? Living your life in a lie, thinking you are saved when Jesus is like, you're not, no, get away from me. I don't even know you. Wait a minute. We did miracles. We prophesied. No. Right? That's scary stuff. John Bevere said at that time, he said, Lord, I'm going to spend the rest of my life outreaching to the people who think they're saved, but they're not. From that vision. So I'm saying that to say this. So that's, so Lord, Lord, right? We went over this. I never knew you away from me, evildoers. Now the very next verse. Therefore, now he tells us what criteria he was using. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice. This is in the context. This is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. Whoever hears this sermon and does it. The things I just talked about. Remember in the, in the preceding verse. Actually, can you go back, Kim? In the preceding verse, he said, um, in, uh, I'm sorry. Matthew 23. Wait. No, wait, sorry, 21. But the, not everyone says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father and who's in heaven. Okay? The ones who, who, who didn't do the will of the Father are the evildoers. Then I plainly tell them, I never knew you away from you, evildoers. Therefore, I heard this said and I like it. Every time you see a therefore in scripture, you should ask, what is it therefore? He's concluding what he just said, isn't he? Right after he said, away from me, I never knew you evildoers. Therefore, everyone hears these words of mine and puts them into practice as like a wise man. Remember, I talk about wisdom. 
A wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, yet it did not fall. Because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell with a great crash. Whoa. Um, sorry, Kim, can you go two slides? Kim, God bless Kim, who every week does the projector, and she has to bear with my... All this, I always give all these scriptures and back and forth. Thank you, Kim. Bless you. So my question, I already answered this. How is it that people who prophesy, drove out demons, performed many miracles in Jesus' name, could not enter heaven? This is, I, I said this last week, and I love this, because Trisha just randomly found this quote yesterday. I'm like, that's perfect. Gifts versus fruit. All those things they listed, prophecy, healings, miracles, are gifts of the Holy Ghost. Grace. They didn't do anything for you. Can't make someone healed. You can't heal any. It's the, it's the Lord who heals them. So your judgment isn't based off of gifts of the Spirit. Why do you think the Corinthians had it were so off base? They had they were operating in all the gifts of the Spirit, Paul says in Corinthians 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. All knowledge, all wisdom, yet they were so far off base into lawlessness, which I'm going to talk about later. That he was royally rebuking through the whole letter. But yet they were just operating on all these amazing gifts, right? Gifts versus fruit. Now, this is the quote Trisha found. I love it. Offended people still may experience miracles, words of utterance, strong preaching, and healing in their lives. But these are gifts of the Spirit, not fruits. We will be judged according to fruit, not gifting. A gift is given a, f- a fruit is cultivated. Fruit is whether we come into agreement with the principles that Jesus speaks, that's how we're going to be judged, not on whether we're operating in the gifts. And it's so confusing for us because we think that gifts are in God's endorsement and they're not. It's grace. It's completely grace. So of course we're not going to be judged on something we never did or earned. It's God, right? So now if you weren't convinced about the last scripture, God, give us, get us drunk on the fear of the Lord. That's what I'm asking. Because I, I can feel, it's the, I know. And I'm saying this because the conviction of the Holy Spirit is good. Wouldn't it be a tragedy if we went through life only focusing on success for today? That's what I was talking about. And ignoring this. When it's, the outcome is eternal. I could, I could just, you know, preach on successful principles that are going to get you through this life and using the promises of God to make you successful for the here and now and totally ignore all this stuff and make you feel good. I could do that, but I'm not by the grace of God because he told me to preach on this. But my prayer is that you have hearts that are receptive and that if you're feeling convicted, like I said last week, there's no condemnation. If it's the conviction of the Holy Ghost, that is mercy and that is grace. All he's doing is saying, hey, course correction, you got to, Repent, which is just turning towards God. You know the difference between condemnation and and conviction? Condemnation draws you away from God. Conviction draws you towards God. If you're feeling condemned and ashamed, I don't even want to be in God's presence. I'm not going to go to church anymore because you're feeling condemned. Conviction is, God, I want to be so like you that I'm going to embrace this conviction so that I can draw closer to you. 
So the fruit of what you're experiencing is going to determine whether it's condemnation or conviction. If it's conviction, I would say go ahead and embrace it and just ask the Lord, okay? Because, you know, what do I need to do to get back on track? Because if we're really living the Christian life, he's going to have to give us course corrections and convict us, right? Because we're not perfect. And I'm telling you, I'm convicted too. <laughs> it's like, like, it's like as if I have this all figured out. No way. I'm preaching to myself. I just want to be constantly thinking about this stuff. That's all I'm saying. Okay, so if you weren't convinced by Matthew 7, here's another scripture. God give us grace. Okay. Luke 12, 42 to 48. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager? This is someone the Lord entrusted as a manager in this life. A leader, okay, whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food and allowance at the proper time. It'll be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Talk about the judgment day. Truly, I tell you, he'll put him in charge of all his possessions. Whoa. If we're good stewards of what God's entrusted us in this life, he's going to put entrust us with eternal treasures and give us so much responsibility charge of all of his possessions isn't that something else this is just a test this life is just a test it really is he's testing our hearts are you going to squander it are you going to serve me to the fullest extent possible because if you do put you in charge of all my possessions ruling and reigning with Christ beside him right but Lord have mercy. Suppose the servant says to himself, my master's taking a long time in coming. And then he begins to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant, this is a servant of Jesus Christ. This isn't an unbeliever. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him, and at an hour he's not aware, he'll cut him to pieces and assign him a place with the unbelievers. This is a believer, right? Because if it was an unbeliever, he's saying, no, you're a servant, and I'm going to assign you a place with the unbelievers because you squandered your life and lived lawlessly, not according to Scripture. And then... The servant who knows, remember we talked about the will of the Father is the criteria for judgment. Those servant who knows, and we're talking about the servants, the believers, who knows the master's will and does not get ready and does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does the things deserving of punishment will be beaten with few blows. From everyone who's been given much, much will be demanded. From the one who's been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. So, right, those who were exposed to Sermon on the Mount versus those who won't, those ones are held to a higher account on Judgment Day because they know the Lord's will. If they don't do it, like Jesus said, if you hear my words and don't do it, you're like that foolish guy who built his house on the sand and it's going to come to destruction. So something to consider because I realize this is opposing Reformed theology. But this is the Bible. Talked about Calvinism. And I, I'm going to actually spend a whole message on that because it's so critical. And there's so much deception in the church. Once saved, always saved. That is not biblical. And I'm going to show you tons. I'm exaggerating. Tons of scriptures <laughs> that show you that is not true. Here's one of them. This is Jesus talking. Matthew 24, 9 through 13. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted. He's talking about the end times. We're living in them. And put to death. And you'll be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many, 
not a few, many will turn away from the faith. What does that mean? Right? Is Jesus a liar? Is it possible to turn away from the faith? And will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most. We're talking the majority. The love of most will grow cold. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Does he say once saved, always saved? The one who stands firm till the end is going to be saved. Lord have mercy. (laughs) Because of the increase of wickedness most, we don't want to be. Jesus says in Matthew 7, right? Few find the narrow gate. Many go to the broad way that leads to destruction. We want to be the few who, who endure to the end. And that's why I'm preaching on this. You don't think I want to just preach on success? Like the latest, like, I won't say the name, but, right? We, I would love to just preach and take, you know, the, the awesome things. <laughs> I don't want to stand before the Lord one day and say, hey, I knew this stuff and I didn't tell my people this. I have to give an account. Am I preaching the full gospel or am I just going to tell you what you want to hear? I want to preach the full gospel. That's what I'm being held accountable for. And so I just pray for a lot of grace because I realize this is a holy ghost. But we, want, we have to think about this stuff, don't we, right? So, okay. Second Corinthians 13.5. And this is why I'm talking about this. This is an exhortation. This is an imperative from Paul. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Isn't that something he's telling us we should be examining ourselves if we're even in the faith? Well, I'm not, Paul, I'm not going to assume you're all in the faith, even though you say you are. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. And I'll tell you how we do it. Do you not realize that Christ Jesus is in you unless, of course, you fail the test? What test is he talking about? We'll talk about the criteria. I'm setting you up here. Philippians 2.12. Therefore, my dear friends, you have always obeyed. Talk about obedience now. Not only in my presence, but how, now how much more in my absence. Continue to work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Once saved, always saved. I'm not hearing that. Anyway, God help us. So, what criteria will our eternal judgment be based on whether we did the will of the Father? I gave you these two scriptures. Now, not everyone who says to me, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but only the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. The servant who knows the master's will but does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows, right? Knowing the will of the Father and doing it, executing it. Thank God for the Bible because we know his will, his general will, okay? So, we, so second, what criteria will eternal judgment be based on? Whether we build on the foundation, the rock, which is the life and teachings of Jesus Christ. And I already gave you these. Therefore, everyone who puts, here's what it puts into practice, Right? Also gave Paul's verse in 1 Corinthians 3. By the grace of God, I laid a foundation talking about a wise builder, someone who's building on Jesus Christ, right? For no one can lay this foundation what's already laid, which is Jesus Christ. Anyone who builds on this foundation using it, and then we talk about that, right? The judgment will, will bring it to light. So, to simplify this all, what criteria, this is the million-dollar question, will eternal judgment be based on the Word of God? The Word of God. Here's, a, here's a, a scripture, if you don't believe me, that you can't argue with. This is Jesus Christ saying this. John 12, 48 to 49. This is what criteria he's using on Judgment Day. He who rejects me, Jesus Christ, and does not receive my words, 
talking, we talked about the Sermon on the Mount, has that which judges him. The word I have spoken will judge him on the last day. The words Jesus Christ has spoken are going to be our criteria that he's using to judge us on judgment day, on the last day. This is interesting. He says, for I have not spoken of my own authority, but the father who sent me gave me a command of what I should say and what I should speak. Remember we talked about Jesus said, whoever does the will of my father is going to be saved. And then he goes on to say, so therefore, if you put my words, you hear them, put them in practice. That's what I'm basing it off of. And that was in the context of Sermon Mount. We're talking about the Jesus, uh, the words of Jesus Christ because they're the words of the Father, and that's the will of the Father. So, to sum, summarize what I just said, and, and this isn't, <laughs> I'm not done, but I want to summarize just this part, okay? There is a judgment day that has been appointed since the foundation of the world. And there's tons of scriptures. I just gave Acts 17.31 if you want to see. That day will not bring new revelations of truth, Rather, it'll measure all things by what has already been spoken by God. Whether in the scripture, and that's what I'm emphasizing, because we're all have no excuse for that, because we all could get Bibles, or his word individually by the Holy Spirit. And I'll show, I can show you scripture on that later in life. The decisions made that day, which will be based on how we lined up our lives with the eternal word, will determine how we spend the rest of eternity. There will never be any changes, exceptions, alterations, or revisions to those decisions, for they're called eternal judgments. Remember Hebrews 6.2, eternal, forever and ever and ever and ever, judgments. Not temporary and all, revisit it, you'll be on you know, probation. No, forever. He's not going to revisit it in a trillion years. Therefore, it would benefit us tremendously to know and live by what he says, wouldn't it? Now, I have good news for you guys. Confidence on the day of judgment. Now that we're all scared. <laughs> we, we can actually have confidence. We're not going to be those people who are like, Lord, I thought I was saved. No, we, we can have confidence. And I'll show you this. There's scriptures that tell us how we have confidence on the day of judgment. So good news. We don't have to go into judgment with fear, but we can uh, go with confidence. Here's a scripture. John 4, 16 through 17. We know how much God loves us. Thank God for the love of God. That should be your foundation. God loves us and we have put our trust in his love. God is love and all who live in love live in God. And God lives in them. Now here's the point. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. So we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. But we can face him with confidence because we live like Jesus here in this world. Remember the life and teachings of Jesus. Okay, so the next slide. Did you learn to love? Because notice the words in the scripture I just gave. As we live in God, our love grows more perfect, so we will not be afraid on the day of judgment. Million dollar question, did you learn to love? How many of you heard Bob Jones' story when he died in the 70s? Yeah. If you don't know who Bob Jones is, maybe look him up. I don't know. <laughs> Because, oh, look them up, but don't believe people's uh, negative stuff about, you know what I'm saying. There's a lot of criticism. He's an amazing prophet of God. I love the guy. Really honor him. He died in 1975 because he was preaching. He had a prophetic word about abortion. And he was, pre he was saying, there's going to be a day. This is back in the 70s. That we're going to have a pill where you can abort. A demon visited him. And he talked about homosexuality too. A demon visited him and said, if you don't stop preaching this stuff, this is in the 70s, I'm going to kill you. And Bob Jones is like, whatever, demon. I'm paraphrasing. 
you can't touch me. I'm a, I'm a believer. That's what he thought. Woke up in the middle of the night dying because he wouldn't stop preaching on abortion and stuff. Okay, no condemnation if you had an abortion, by the way. I'm just saying this to make a point. He died, literally died, went to heaven. He was in line, and he said 3% of people were, getting, were saved in the line to go to heaven, and most people were going to hell. Back, this is in the 70s. So whether that's still the case, hopefully not. The one question he said Jesus asked every single person if they were saved, did you learn to love? That's it. That's all he asked them. And he said there was a lineup, and there was people in front of him, and he said the one person was like an evangelist. She had all these angels around him. She's like, yeah, I learned to love. And the Lord, they, everyone was celebrating. This other person who's in front of him said, you know, I'm sorry. I, I really didn't. You know, I grew bitter, whatever. And, and, but she, he still let her in. But she didn't, right, fare at Fenwell. Then Bob was like, what am I going to say? And he's like, I'm going to say I learned to love. Because he thought, you know, you can't lie. And he's like, I, I did. But then the Lord told him, you got to go back to earth. So anyway, and then the rest is history. He changed the earth with his prophetic words. But the point is... Did you learn to love is the, the question. That's the criteria. Okay, so the key that gives us confidence on judgment day is the love of God being made perfect in us. The questions I have then, what does love look like? Because whenever I heard that, I don't know. Did I learn to love? Like, what's the criteria of love? How do we perfect or mature in the love of God if that's what gives us confidence on judgment day? And I'll show you. Thankfully, John answers that question earlier in that book. 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 to 6. Talking about perfecting love so we can have confidence on Judgment Day. Whoever says, I know him, this is from the Amplified Bible, I perceive, recognize, understand, and am acquainted with him, but fails to keep and obey his commandments, teachings, is a liar. And the truth of the gospel is not in him. But he who keeps treasures his word, who bears in mind his precepts, who observes the message in its entirety, truly in him has the love and of and for God been perfected, completed, and reached maturity. How do we perfect love so we can have confidence? Obeying the teachings and commands of Jesus according to the scripture. Isn't that interesting? By this we may perceive, know, recognize, and be sure that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to have as a personal debt to walk and conduct himself in the same way in which he walked and conducted himself. Did you learn to love? According to, now just to summarize, according to 1 John 4.17, I already gave you this, it is the perfected, matured love of God that gives us confidence to stand before the judge. According to 1 John 2.5, makes it clear that the love of God is perfected in keeping his commandments... Stay, and if you don't believe John, you got to believe Jesus, <laughs> hopefully. This is also stated many times by Jesus. Bam, bam, bam. I'll just read these to you. John 14, 15. If you love me, keep my commands. John 14, 21. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. John 14, 23 to 24. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teachings. My Father will love them and will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teachings. These words you hear are my, not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Remember, the will of the Father. We talked about in Matthew 7. Those who don't do the will of the Father, I didn't even know you. John 15, 9 through 10, as the Father has loved me, so I've loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love. 
Just as I've kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. John 15, 14. You are my friends if you do what I command. Now, thank God Jesus preached. Jesus. Lord have mercy. Trisha preached on this. Remember? Some of you were here in the fall about how there's a connection between the commands of Jesus and the Holy Ghost leading into all truth. So I'm focusing on the word of God, right? The Bible, because we have the words of Jesus and that's a criteria, but there's a personal will of God for your life, and it's revealed to you by the Holy Spirit, and we'll talk about that someday. You're going to be judged based on that as well, but that's for another day. True success, living for eternity. So I asked the question, what success? Uh, next slide, if you can. No, I have the question. All right, true success is living for eternity. So the key to success is knowing what the king desires and expects of us, in this life, keeping his word, because that's what's going to judge us on Judgment Day, right? John 9.48. Unfortunately, many people today are not building their lives on the eternal God's word, but rather on cultural thinking, tradition, assumptions, and emotional feelings about who God is and what love is. We define love often, I'm going to not just say we, but a lot of the church on how the world defines love, and that is not love, according to Scripture. Question I have for you, and then you can just ask yourself this. Are you familiar enough with his word to know what's expected of you on Judgment Day? And I don't want you to answer that. I just want you to ask yourself that. Kim, if you'd skip two slides, because I'm going to just skip that scripture for the sake of time, because there's something I have to say at the end of this message. Living for eternity. The truths about eternal judgments are crucial as we seek to be kingdom people who live for the eternal, not for self. We have an eternal perspective. Okay, when, sorry, we have an eternal perspective, this is what's going to happen if we adopt eternal perspective. We'll pursue and make decisions differently. We will endure things we would otherwise yield to in this life. Our whole life takes a different perspective if we adopt eternal perspective. The world lives for the day. However, true believers are motivated by the everlasting and will be rewarded eternally for it. Now, I was going to end there last time, and I want to say something. I'll try and be quick, because this is so important. We have to keep this in mind in this series, and especially after today. <laughs> the quest for the radical middle. Okay? What am I talking about? I'll tell you. A major issue that's consuming God's people and wearing them out is legalism. There are at least two things in Scripture called leaven. And if you remember, I talked about more than two, but I'm going to focus on two today. Paul called malice and wickedness leaven in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 to 8. Sin and wickedness is leaven in Scripture. Paul also referred to legalism as leaven. That's Galatians 5, 9. Jesus also warned of the teaching of the Pharisees and called them leaven. Legalism, the religious spirit. Remember, I talked all about the religious spirit. Okay, Mark 8, 15. Where am I going with this? Oh, actually, I want to read this. I want you to notice, actually, in what context Paul is calling. Uh, next slide, Kim, sorry. Calling sin and wickedness leaven. He's talking to the Corinthians. Who were living in lawlessness. There's, I'm getting ahead of myself. Let's just read this. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast leavens the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as you really are. Um, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival not with the old bread leavened with malice and wickedness, 
That's what the leaven there. But with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. He goes on. Drunkards, all that. That's in the context of wickedness. Next verse is Galatians 5.9. Talking about legalism. Because that's the ditch Galatians fell in. On the path of life, there's two ditches. Lawlessness on one side, legalism on the other. We have to stay in the path of life. The Corinthians got in the ditch of lawlessness. And he said, hey, no. And the whole letter's correcting them. The Galatians got on in the ditch of legalism. And he said, no. Right? So those two letters, the focus of them is to get them out of the ditches and get them back on the path of life. So you who are trying to be justified by the law have been alienated from Christ. You've fallen away from grace. Because they got into legalism. This is why I'm talking about this today. I cannot fathom me preaching something that gets you into legalism and I'm gonna that's why this is important no way I'm not gonna cut you guys off from grace we need that at the core of everything we do if you get into legalism it's not sin that's cutting you off from grace it's law according to this scripture for th- uh, through the spirit we eagerly wait by faith the righteousness from which we hope For in Jesus Christ, neither circumcision or uncircumcision has any value. The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Remember, we talk about love. You were running a good race who cut in on you and kept you from obeying the truth. That kind of persuasion does not come from the one who calls you. A little yeast leaven works through the whole batch of dough. You see that? What is leaven? It's like yeast. You put leaven in dough. It saturates the whole dough, expands it, and puffs it up. So you have legalism on one side. I already said this. Lawlessness on the other side. Okay? And they're both being called leaven because they'll saturate your life and they'll do you in if you let them run their full course. They will be the end of you if you let either of them run the full course. You need to always be in guard against both of them. So the key point, the radical middle... There's a ditch on either side of the path of life. Legalism on one side, lawlessness on the other. Many people, and this is a tragedy because I see this with some of the people I know. Many people fall in one ditch and then they overreact. Okay? So, for example, they might fall into the ditch of legalism and then overreact and then fall on the other side of lawlessness. So they can't even hear words like, hey, works, you're gonna be ba- your life's going to be based off of what you do in this life. No way, that's works. <laughs> You know what? Okay, I'm going to stick to the notes. (laughs) Lord have mercy. The path of life is going between those two ditches. To stay on the path, the radical middle, you need to stay between those two ditches. Okay? And we want to help people stay on the path of life. Now look at this, Galatians 1.3. I'm just trying to speed through this, but we we need to hear this. You foolish Galatians who's bewitched you, it's witchcraft. This is a strong witchcraft to put people under legalism. Witchcraft. That's why I'm talking about this right now. I am not going to put you under legalism if I can help it. So I want you to hear me say this. Who's bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law believing what you heard? Are you so foolish After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Do you know what's so provocative about this? We read it and we don't realize Paul is calling the law works of the flesh. He's putting it in the same category, if you read Galatians 5, 19 through 21, as drunkenness, sexual immorality, debauchery, and orgies. 
He's saying the works of the law are the same thing. They're works of the flesh, and you're not getting salvation through them. Okay? So, very critical. Warning against a ditch of legalism. A religious spirit tries to get us basing our standing with God on our works, on religious performance rather than what's purchased by us by the cross of Jesus Christ. Okay? A religious spirit, and that usually operates through imposing legalism, is trying to get us to base our acceptance with God on performance rather than on relationship. We've been born again into his family, and we are family by the blood of Jesus. Okay, so our works, which we should be zealous for, our works is not driven by fear and not driven from a perspective of trying to be acceptable to God. We already have that acceptance. The true works come from the position of already having the acceptance from God, not trying to get it. We do these things out of love for him. And that's what Jesus was saying. If you love me, the fruit of that is you're obeying my commands. If you don't love me, you're not going to. You got it? It's the difference between a bride who tries to make sure she's spotless for the bridegroom out of fear that he'll smack her if she does, if it isn't completely perfect. Versus the bride who wants to be spotless for her bridegroom because she loves him so much she wants to be perfect for him. You see the difference? Is it out of fear or is it out of love? Perfect love casts out fear. It can't be out of fear. Because as soon as you get into fear, you can get into legalism that can cut you off from the grace of Christ. So we got to be careful. Always remember, our standing with God is based on our faith in Jesus and his atonement and abiding in him. Nothing else. I'm talking about salvation now. Okay? And I love this quote by Gordon Fee, and it's so true. Anything that's done as a regulatory measure to identify people as Christ's rather than the spirit is a form of slavery. In other words, the only thing that identifies you as a believer is whether you have the Holy Spirit or not. I could, make you, I could show you in Scripture that's the only thing. The only way you know if you're a believer, I could show you tons of Scriptures on this, is whether you have the spirit or not. That's the only thing. Anything else is a form of slavery if you try and base your standing off Christ off anything else. I'm talking about salvation, okay? So, quest for the radical middle. The question is, how do you stay in the radical middle? In other words, the path of life. How do you stay on the path of life and not go into the ditch of legalism like the Galatians and not go into the ditch of lawlessness like the Corinthians? Romans 11.22. Behold the kindness and severity of God. He's both a lion and a lamb. Okay? To those who fell, severity. But to you, God's kindness, if, there's a condition, if you continue in his kindness, otherwise you will also be cut off. It doesn't say once saved, always saved. Even though Romans 9 through 11, people use to say that it's predetermined, it is not. This is in Romans 11. If you continue in his kindness. Okay? So, the kindness of God keeps you out of legalism. The severity of God keeps you out of lawlessness. Another way of saying it, the love of God keeps you out of legalism. The fear of God keeps you out of lawlessness. And that's why the fear of God is a good thing. Because if we don't have the fear of God, we are going potentially into lawlessness. And we don't want to go there. 
So I'm going to trumpet the fear of God and embrace it. And God, by his grace, hopefully he'll get us drunk on it. I know it's possible. (laughs) Okay. So remember this quote I gave you. What we do with the cross determines where we spend eternity. This is also the radical middle. Salvation is by grace and not by works, lest we boast. But the way we live as believers determines how we're going to spend eternity. Works are not a bad thing. In fact, the crux, the foundational scripture of the Protestant Reformation, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you're not saved by works, right? By, but by grace through faith. Right after it says, because you're all God's handy, we're created in Christ to do good works. The irony is you don't hear Protestants talking about the next verse, and it's right after you're saved by grace through faith so that you do good works. Okay, so it's okay. Good works are necessity. And they're going to determine how you spend eternity, but not your salvation. You got it? And we need that as a foundation. I love this quote by John or not. Keep you in suspense. (laughs) Lovers outwork workers every time. You hear that? Lovers outwork workers every time. What's he saying? Like the bride I told you about. She's not getting this. The one who loves the bridegroom is getting perfect and spotless because she, out of love, because she so loves her husband. And she's doing nice things for him, not because she has to, because she wants to, versus the bride who's doing it out of fear of him, like smacking her and being whatever. Right? You see the difference? The lover is going to, the one who's in love is going to outwork and do more things for her husband than the worker who's doing it out of obligation. You you see that? So I want to end on this. If you guys are okay, we'll pray after. (laughs) This is from Jude 20, verses 25. And this is the Dodoxali from Jude, and I love it. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves in your most holy faith and by praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love, in God's love, as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Remember I talked about how can we be confident on the day of judgment? The love of God. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others, show mercy mixed with fear, hating even the clothing stained by corruption. To him who's able, now this is where I'm going. This is the doxology. I love this. To him, Jesus Christ, who's able to keep you from stumbling, whether in lawlessness or legalism. To him who's able to keep you from falling away and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. I love other translations say exceedingly great joy. Exceeding joy. To the only God our Savior be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. What's he saying? He's able to keep us on the path of life. He's able to keep us from stumbling. And he's going to present us before the Lord on the day of judgment with exceeding joy. Right? That's what he's praying for them. And he's saying. So. (laughs) So. (laughs) How do I end this one? The fear of the Lord. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to pray for all of us. That's how we end. And like I said, I mean, this is a tough message for all of us. 
And, and I just want to pray that the love of the Father saturates us right now, knowing his unconditional love. Father, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord. I ask that you fill us, Father, with your love. I ask that you fill us with your power so that we may know your love. Lord, I ask you that, like I prayed earlier, that we would know the depths of your love and the height and the width and the breadth. Father, that we would grow in the knowledge of you, that we... That we'd be filled with the knowledge of you through your Holy Spirit so that we'd live a life worthy of you and please you in every way, bearing fruit in every good work, growing in the knowledge of you, being strengthened with all power according to your glorious might so that we may have all great endurance and patience. And we give joyful thanks to you, Father, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in the kingdom of light. We thank you that you've rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son you love and whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. May we never forget that. Lord, I ask you to keep us on the path of life and that we would not fall on the side of legalism or in the ditch of lawlessness, but that we would live our lives completely and fully surrendered to you. Lord, we ask for the revelation of your will and for the grace to empower us to fulfill love so that when we stand before you, we will have confidence on Judgment Day saying, yes, we learned how to love. Help us to obey your teachings. Help us to obey your commands. Help us to obey your Holy Spirit as you speak to each and every one of us. And Lord, I just ask if you're convicting us of anything that you would give us the grace to repent and to turn back to you without condemnation. I just break off any condemnation in Jesus Christ. No shame. But Lord, we thank you that the fear of the Lord is clean. And it endures forever. And Lord, we just ask for that grace right now. The spirit of the fear of the Lord. And that we would walk in the fear of the Lord like Jesus did and delight in it. So we just thank you for revelation knowledge. To know how to walk as you walked. And to live as you lived. We just ask for a greater knowledge of your grace. And also a, great, a greater knowledge of your kindness. And an even greater knowledge of your severity. In Jesus name. Oh, amen. Oh, wow.